sticky, sweet, and highly lucrative. Molasses was a booming industry throughout the foundational years of the American frontier. Boston, Massachusetts was the center of that industry and they were thriving. They were the pillar of the transatlantic trade network, one of the most profitable trading systems in the world, and the future had never looked brighter. By the early 1900s, Boston was riding a wave of molasses trade into the golden age of luxury, but that wave was about to come crashing down around them with devastating results. I'm Scott Parrish, and you're listening to Dying to Eat. Each episode, we'll be focusing on a different country, culture, or case, and exploring the relationship between food and death around the world. If you enjoy cool adventure-based t-shirts, check out our sponsor, Swampy Supply Company at SwampySupply.com. Stay tuned for food, facts, and fun stories, and let's see what's cooking this week. Oh yeah, and thanks to Reba C. right here in South Florida for following and supporting Dying to Eat. We appreciate all of our fans and our, all of our followers. Sugar has been around since the beginning of human history, and records of people converting that sugar into molasses date back to the early 500 B.C.s. As far as I can tell, it was first made in India by boiling raw sugar cane, and it's a similar process to how we make molasses now. Except these days, we make it out of other sugary plants too, like sugar beets and pomegranates. The word molasses itself actually comes from the Latin word mel, which means honey. And if you think about it, molasses is a lot like honey, except it's made by people instead of bees. In fact, For as long as molasses has been around, we've been using it in a similar way to honey, mostly as a sweetener in our food. Of course, if you're a fan of rum, you'll know that molasses serves another important purpose, since it makes up the base for this sweet, spicy liqueur that pairs so well with a can of Coke. But today's story isn't about my favorite mixers. It's about the American frontier and the sandy beaches of the Caribbean, the emerald jungles of Africa, and the thread of life and death that tied them together through the centuries. Our story begins in the early 1600s, when Britain, Spain, and France were locked in a race to take over the world. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you'll remember that in Europe, they were going through a rough patch in that medieval era, but the Vikings and the Black Plague were behind them now, and things really looked pretty well. The population of most European countries were largely recovered. Shakespeare was at the height of his career, and coffee houses were starting to pop up all over the place, where people could meet to talk about news, politics, and the latest scientific discoveries. The major powers of Europe had been sending out explorers for a couple of hundred years at this point, and they'd established colonies all over the West, so a lot of the news was coming in from these colonies. Spain, France, and Britain all held colonies in North America and Africa at the time, and they used these colonies to generate resources and one-up each other politically. We've mainly been focusing on Britain today, but I think it's important to set the stage first. Spain, France, and Britain all have a history of battling each other when it comes to various wars and conflicts. And there are some battles that held over the land occupied by each country's colonies overseas, but not so many that there has been in the past. This was because all countries had incentive to keep 
things civil between them in order to maximize trading opportunities with each other. After all, dead armies can't buy imported goods, and that really starts to cut into profits after a while. Getting back to Britain, though, they had colonies not only in North America and Africa, but also in the Caribbean. And it was these three locations that made up the foundation for the transatlantic, transatlantic slave trade. Listen to our episode on Louisiana if you want more on that subject. So basically, British colonies in Africa would take native African people as slaves and force them onto ships where they were sent across the ocean to be sold. Sometimes they were sent to Britain and sometimes they were sent to the colonies in America. But often they were taken to the Caribbean and they were sold to the British colonists who lived there in exchange for molasses, which was one of the main exports on the island. In the Caribbean, the slaves were forced to work on sugar plantations where the molasses was made. This was a horrifying system in which Africans were basically being forced to make a product that their own people would be sold for. Some of the molasses would be transported back to Britain for the British colonies in Africa or the British colonies in Africa, but most of it was shipped back to the colonies in North America and it was made into rum. Some of the rum was sold to American colonies, some of it was sent back to Britain, and some of it was sent to Africa, and some of it was sent back to the Caribbean colonies to be sold to the plantation owners. Because apparently, Forcing people to do all the hard work for you under the threat of violence was really thirsty work. So this cycle of slaves, molasses, and rum moving between Africa, the Caribbean, and North America was what you call a triangle trade, and it basically gave Britain a monopoly on the market. Today, most of us only use molasses to make cookies for the holidays, but back then it was something that people ate every day. You wouldn't buy it in this cute little 12-ounce jar labeled Grandma's, You'd literally buy it by the bucket. And if you're a shop owner, you'd buy it by the barrel. People used it in all kinds of baking. They made it into brown sugar. They added it to coffee or tea or to oatmeal or to grits. They put it in waffles and pancakes. They made it into candies. They made it into barbecue syrup or marinades. uh, Barbecue sauce or marinades. Forgive me there on that barbecue, friends. And it was essential in making baked beans, which was a staple for British cuisine back in that day. Not to mention, rum was really starting to catch on with the Europeans, especially in the American colonies. And it was quickly growing into this massive industry. Now, I said before that Britain basically had a monopoly on the sugar industry. But that's not completely true. In fact... France also had colonies in the Caribbean, or the West Indies is what they were called back then, where they had sugar plantations. The French plantations competed with the British plantations, but they were at a disadvantage. You see, France wanted a piece of the molasses action, but there wasn't much of a market for molasses itself in France, and the French government was restricting the import of rum from the French colonies because they wanted to promote the trade of French brandy instead. The only reason the French molasses trade was able to function at all was because there was this huge demand for molasses in the American colonies, that they were buying so much of it that they could get it both from the French and the British if possible. The British plantation owners were basically swimming in money at this point, but it just wasn't enough for them. 
They wanted total control of the molasses market, and to do that, they needed the French colonists out of the way. So they petitioned the British Parliament to help them, and that was where the Molasses Act of 1733 came from. The Molasses Act was the Molasses Act was basically a tax the British government enforced on all of the molasses that came from non-British colonies. The tax was basically designed to destroy the business of the French sugar plantation owners since they wouldn't be able to compete with the prices of the British plantations due to the heavy taxation, and it was extremely effective. Unfortunately, there were side effects. Like I said before, the British colonists needed as much molasses as they could get to fuel both the molasses and the rum industries, which they were heavily reliant on. So the tax on the French molasses didn't just kneecap the business for the French plantation owners, it was seriously screwing over the American colonists who were forced to either pay for those taxes or face a molasses shortage, which would be even more financially devastating. This was no accident on the British government's part either. I actually found a quote from a member of the British Board of Trade talking about the tax, and I won't read it out because, you know, when you get politicians involved, it gets pretty wordy. But basically what he said is he realized how much, how damaging the tax would be to the American colonists. And he said that if the tax wouldn't destroy them financially, it would almost destroy them financially. And that they need to be taken down a peg anyway because they were always going to talk about that, you know, that independence thing. And they were trying to get out of paying their fair share of taxes. Needless to say, both the American colonists and the French plantation, plantation owners were absolutely furious with the British government and the British plantation owners. If you think of uh, high school history class, you'll probably remember that ludicrous high taxes that were the huge driving factor behind the American Revolution. And the molasses tax is actually one of the biggest examples. One historian put it this way, The tax threatened New England with ruin, struck a blow at the economic foundations of middle colonies, and at the time opened the way for the British West Indies, now read into that, that's the British plantation owners, whom the continental colonists regarded as their worst enemies, to wax rich at the expense of their fellow subjects on the mainland. The American colonists were so angry about the molasses tax that they just started smuggling molasses in from the French colonies and it evolved into this entire underground industry. The same historian that I quoted a second ago also went on to say, against the molasses act, Americans had only their smugglers to depend on, but those redoubtable gentry proved more than a match for the British. After a brief effort to enforce the act in Massachusetts in 1740, the English government tacitly accepted defeat and the foreign molasses was smuggled into the northern colonies in an ever-increasing quantity. Thus, the New England merchants survived, but only by nullifying the act of Parliament. It sounds totally crazy that early America was saved by an illegal molasses smuggling ring, but hey... Sometimes, truth is stranger than fiction. Speaking of early America, 
Let's take this opportunity to zoom in on our map to Massachusetts to this little place called Boston. Boston was founded by a group of English Puritans in 1630 and it quickly became the hub for politics, business, education, and religion in the New World. Throughout the first half of the 1700s, the city battled six different smallpox epidemics, a fire big enough to destroy 350 entire buildings, leveling a significant portion of the city, and the biggest earthquake on record to hit the northeastern U.S. Needless to say, it was a couple of rough decades, but the city rebuilt itself time and time again, and progress continued steadily forward. Boston was the location of many molasses processing plants and rum distilleries, so they hit especially hard by the Molasses Act of 1733. The ports were constantly filled with ships smuggling in molasses, to the point where the British government had to give up even trying to enforce the tax. But the people never forgot how they'd been treated, and the city served as the backdrop for the American Revolution in the latter half of that century. They suffered great losses, but like so many times before, they picked themselves up, dusted themselves off, and got back to work rebuilding, eventually regaining their reputation as the important center of culture and trade. Boston also had a really extensive railroad network, which reminds me of my dad joke. How do you find a lost train? You track it down. <laughs> Every time I do that, I see... Pete, just scrunch up. But you know what? I love dad jokes. Anyway, the railroads brought in a lot of money and made life a lot more convenient. And that really helped the recovery after the revolution. By 1830, Boston was booming and it became the central hub for science, education, and the abolition of slavery. This was the Enlightenment era. The city was always buzzing with news and opinions and the latest pamphlets put out by philosophers and scientists. Things were going great until 1872 when they had another huge fire that left 65 acres of the city in ash, including a huge portion of the financial district. It was disastrous. But as well, they managed to rebuild and move on. Despite the setbacks, Boston was the place to be, and many Europeans began migrating to the city in the second half of the 1800s. Ireland was in the middle of the Great Potato Famine at the time, and people were desperate to escape the, cruel the cruelty of the British government, so many of them set off for Boston. These people, mainly Irish Catholics, made up a large portion of the newcomers in Boston for decades. Boston, which had originally been mostly Protestant, slowly converted over to the Catholicism, becoming more and more conservative as time passed. By the early 1900s, censorship became a widespread problem. Law enforcement officers were shutting down movies, theater shows, and even confiscating books because they were deemed too scandalous for polite society. It got to a point where advertisers started using the phrase banned in Boston to market anything that was even remotely related to something that was tab taboo because they knew that it would drum up public interest. By the late 1910s, things really got heated. In any big city, that you've got to have crime. There's so many people from so many different walks of life living side by side 
you're going to have some desperate people and you're going to have people that are just plain looking for trouble. Not to mention the First World War was waged from 1914 to 1918, leaving much of the world battered and exhausted. Boston's own molasses factories had been repurposed during the war and the molasses was broken down into chemicals that were used to make munitions for the military. But public opinion at the time was that alcohol was the main source of all of Boston's problems. If people weren't so busy drinking, they'd have time to work. They'd spend more time with their families, and they'd even pray more. Well, that was the idea anyway. In 1919, it was put to a vote, and the results were pretty clear. The sale of alcohol would be banned in Massachusetts. But they weren't alone. The entire country voted, and in 1920, the 18th Amendment of the United States Constitution was officially passed. The clouds parted way, the sun shone down, and everyone cheered in the streets at this brilliant new law that would save them all. Just kidding. In fact, people were looking for a creative new way to get their fix from day one. Bars and taverns were replaced by underground speakeasies. People started having tea parties in the evenings. But most of the time, their tea was made for more than just uh, sugar and cream. One drugstore installed this false wall at the back of their phone booth that allowed customers to order their booze in secret. The false wall led to a secret back room of the store where the clerk was waiting to take their money and fill their flask. Sometimes people would order a drink and the clerk would hand them a cup. Then the customer would pound it right there in the phone booth and hand the cup back to the clerk. Then they'd just wipe their mouth and walk out of the booth like nothing happened. Yeah, that's kind of weird, but... You know what? That's pretty funny, too. That's actually a pretty hilarious system. I like it. There are honestly so many interesting stories from the Prohibition era, but some of the best ones are about the women who famously led the charge in smuggling alcohol. They hid booze in their skirts, under their mattresses, in their baby buggies, and even under their kids' clothes, which allowed them to hide, transport, and distribute it without even raising an eyebrow. All of this sneaking around made for some good stories, but it was also really dangerous. Food and drink regulations were already pretty minimal in the U.S. in the early 1900s. But when you make something illegal, you eliminate all the possibility of regulating it for safety. And in this case, since it was illegal to sell alcohol in the first place, there was no real incentive for people that were making the alcohol to ensure that it was really safe to drink because it's not like their customers were going to complain to the police, you know? Despite our desperate customers were also much more willing to take a risk. So this led to some serious increase in alcohol poisoning cases. Some of this was due to contaminants, but a lot of it was due to the absurdly high alcohol volumes in the uh, bootlegged liquor. Even though the entire point of prohibition was to be was to put an end to crime, organized crime, dramatically increased and actually thrived. A whole bunch of new gangs were formed and they basically took over the city of Boston. Law enforcement and politicians alike participated in shady dealings and everybody knew it. Boston became caught in a cycle of violence as public trust in the government and and police dwindled Crime continued to rise, and there was 
a similar effect happening across the whole country. President Woodrow Wilson had actually seen this coming, so he tried to veto prohibition after Congress passed it, but Congress overrode his veto. In 1933, Congress finally acknowledged that they had to address the situation, so they passed the 21st Amendment that repealed the 18th Amendment. In Boston, prohibition came to an end December 5th, 1933 at exactly 5.32 p.m., and there were people partying in the streets. The distilleries came back to life, and the molasses industry, which had suffered seriously during the Prohibition, once it began, began to thrive. Prohibition wasn't the only notable event to hit Boston in January of 1919, though. On January 16th, it was announced that the 18th Amendment was passed, and you'd expect everyone to be talking about it, but the newspapers were still plastered with the shocking headlines from the tragedy that had struck the day before. January 15th had started like any other day. Boston's northern end neighborhood was a bustling shipping port, one of the busiest parts of the city, and the streets were as lively as ever, full of people going about their business. One of the massive buildings lining the streets off the north end was the molasses factory owned by the U.S. Industrial Alcohol Company, whose advertisements proudly declared largest producer in the world. As the largest producer of industrial alcohol, their factory was even bigger than most of the sprawling buildings in the area, and it was filled with these absolutely humongous tanks full of molasses, which they distilled into the alcohol that they sold. One of the tanks had a problem for a while. Reportedly, it was made out of the wrong kind of steel, a kind that was prone to being brittle. And even if it were the right kind of steel, it wasn't thick enough to withstand the pressure that came from all of the packed-in molasses. So this thing leaked from the very first day that it was installed. The leak apparently got so bad that local children would come by the factory with buckets to fill up with free molasses. And the company got so many safety complaints, they, they eventually had no choice but to address the issue. Unfortunately, their fix was a little bit more interesting than what it should have been. What they did was they painted the whole thing brown to hide the leaks. Then, <laughs> I know, isn't that ridiculous? Then the corporate America, way to go. When the tank finally burst, no amount of brown paint could hold back the tide. The burst released 2.3 million gallons of molasses all at once, and the stacked upright design of the tank caused it to come rushing out at a 35-foot wave moving at 35 miles an hour. The molasses instantly covered everything in sight, and when the hot molasses comes to meet cold air, you know what happens? It turns into a sticky, sweet cement. Over 150 people and a whole bunch of horses were caught in the tidal wave. 21 people died, either from injuries, burns, or asphyxiation. Buildings, cars, and even streets themselves were completely destroyed. Looking at the black and white photographs of the wreckage, the whole scene was completely indistinguishable from some kind of natural disaster that looked like a hurricane or a tsunami. The, the black goo that covered the entire area 
was several feet deep in some places and had to be seeped into the harbor, spreading across the water like black ink. The great molasses flood of 1919 took months to clean up, and the entire neighborhood smelled like molasses for decades. Supposedly, if you go there on a hot day, you can even smell it today. The damage of the flood caused really can't be overstated, and everyone knew that it had been caused by the negligence of the factory. So there was a whole line of angry business owners waiting to sue the U.S. Industrial Alcohol Company. There were so many of them that they ended up combining lawsuits, and this case actually set the precedence in American history. It paved the way for all future class action lawsuits. Prior to this case, it wasn't very common to have witness testimonies in court, but there were plenty of people that had something to say about a leaky molasses tank and their experiences with the factory's working conditions. Because of this, the case also started public conversations about worker safety, and it's the reason engineers and architects have to keep records today of their work. By this time, Boston had a 300-year history in the molasses industry. Molasses has a long and troubled history, but it certainly survived the test of time as a holiday favorite. Earlier in this episode, I mentioned that we don't use molasses much these days except in the holidays. That's not quite right. Sure, most of us don't pour pure molasses from a jar every day to top off our pancakes or sweeten our coffee, but it's actually used for all sorts of things you never guess. And I have a hunch that molasses is actually going to make a trendy comeback as a household staple sometime in the not-too-distant future. We've already talked a little bit about how molasses is a key ingredient in things like gingerbread, barbecue sauce, and baked beans. But whenever you find yourself dying to eat something sweet, you can actually use substitute molasses for all kinds of sweeteners, like to replace sugar or honey, agave, or maple syrup. Next time you have a recipe that calls for any of these things, try using molasses instead and see what you think. If nothing else, you'll get an experience of a sweet piece of history. Blackstrap molasses, which is a super concentrated kind of molasses, is actually starting to catch on as a trendy supplement right now because it has a whole bunch of health benefits you can't get from refined sugar. It contains all sorts of vitamins and minerals like magnesium, potassium, iron, calcium, and vitamin B6 to name a few. It also has some anti-inflammatory properties, so mixing a little in your tea can apparently help with headaches or tummy aches or even arthritis. Although remember, I'm not a doctor. I'm not trying to tell you what you have to put in your body. Always worth a shot to add something in to try something new though, right? Even though it's a healthier substitute for regular processed sugar, molasses still has a pretty high sugar content. So there are probably healthier ways to get these benefits, like eating vegetables and fruits. But they say, you know, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. So maybe molasses could uh, could do that too. If you're trying to watch your sugar intake though, there's plenty of cool things you can do with molasses other than to eat it. All right, think about this. For example, if you have frizzy hair, you can mix it with warm water and use it as a rinse. 
And for dry hair, you can mix it with some coconut milk and make a hydrating mask. You just want to be sure that you wash it all out when you're done or you're going to be left with a little stickiness. Hey, by the way, it's great for your skin too. And I have it on good authority that it makes an excellent face wash if you mix it with a little water and uh, turmeric. You can even use molasses around the house. If you're ever up for a science experiment, take a piece of rusty metal and put it in a container. Then fill the container with one part molasses mixed with five parts of water. Make sure that the whole piece of metal is covered in the stuff and then let it sit for a couple of weeks. When, now it takes a while, but when you take the metal out and you wash it, the rust should be completely gone. I will warn you though, that you'll want to keep it in an airtight container and use a pair of gloves for this experiment because as you might expect, wet molasses tends to mold after a while. That being said, molasses definitely makes a better gardening solution than rust remover. A lot of people add it to their garden beds or their compost piles because it promotes the growth of microorganisms in the soil, which helps your plants grow. Still, you may be better off using wood chips or organic fertilizers or regular compost. If you're going to use molasses as plant food, you're way better off using it on your indoor plants because outdoor gardens are much better at self-regulating and a light rain could wash away your topsoil additives like molasses. In fact, if you happen to live in a place where it's legal, I've heard it's an excellent soil enhancer for growing cannabis. Hmm, allegedly. Let me know. Sweets, skincare, and science experiments aside, I was surprised to find out how many industrial uses molasses has. Sometimes it gets added to crop fertilizers or cattle feeds because of the vitamins and the high sugar content, but it can also be broken down into a ton of different ingredients that get made into all sorts of things. Things like yeast and citric acid that usually get added to other processed foods that we eat every day, but also things like ethanol, butane, acetone, and industrial alcohol. It can even be used as a component in cement. Some scientists are even looking at using molasses as a fuel sometime in the near future. It works the same way that fuel that is made out of corn, which isn't super widely used yet, but it's one of the main fuel sources that is expected to eventually replace fossil fuels. And we all know that that's just on the horizon. Despite all of the many uses of molasses, there are some kinks in the system that are still being worked out. For one thing, it's difficult to transport because it's heavy, thick, and it takes up a lot of space. And once you get it in whatever it's going, once you get it to wherever it's going, it's also tricky to remove it all from the containers because it's sticky and it pours out slowly. There are engineers that are working on designing a better container for moving molasses, but that's a progress in work. So if you come up with any good ideas, make sure you patent them right away. And when you make millions off of it, just remember your old pal, Scott. Another big problem with molasses industry is water. It takes a lot of water to make molasses and a lot more to process it into other things. 
that wouldn't be such a big deal if we just recycle the water. But as it turns out, therein lies the issue. The wastewater from molasses processing is highly contaminated with a whole bunch of different contaminants. So it has to go through a bunch of different water treatment processes to make it clean enough to reuse. The whole process ends up wasting a ton of energy, time, and resources. So scientists are working on coming up with more efficient ways to clean the wastewater and they're also trying to come up with ways to save water when they're making molasses in the first place. While I was working on this episode, I actually read up on some of the most recent market reports on molasses trade. These reports usually include market projections for the future based on the whole bunch of factors, and molasses market is predicted to continue to expand pretty rapidly over the next decade. And after everything else I've learned about in preparation for this episode, I gotta tell you, that really doesn't surprise me. It's no secret that we Americans have a sweet tooth, and in today's world, we're always looking for the next big trend. So it makes sense that those two habits would have to overlap. First, it was processed sugar. Then it was corn syrup. Then it was Splenda. Then it was raw cane sugar. And now agave is the big trend. So it makes sense that the next big wave, so to speak, is molasses. All this talk of sweet stuff has me wanting some, one of my old favorites, shoe fly pie. It makes me think of hot summer days when I was a kid in Tennessee. Sticky, gooey, and sweet enough to make your teeth slap your mouth. While this pie originated in the Pennsylvania Dutch, it's become a popular dish in many other areas in the U.S. It's simple to make and it's born to please. The pie got its name because of the sweetness was known to bring flies buzzing around the house for their share. So to get started, we're going to need three cups of all-purpose flour, a cup and a half of unsulfurated molasses and boiling water, a cup of brown sugar, two sticks of unsalted butter, a teaspoon each of cinnamon, nutmeg, and baking soda, and a quarter teaspoon of salt. And of course, we can't forget about the crust. For this one, you can use two of your favorite pre-made pie crust if you're planning to share this with other people or one big old deep dish pie crust if you want to save some fridge space and uh, keep this pie for yourself. Go ahead and preheat your oven to 450 degrees and while it's heating up, we'll take a big mixing bowl and add in the flour, sugar, cinnamon, nutmeg, and salt. Make sure it's thoroughly mixed together and then take a pastry cutter or a knife with a wide blade and slice your butter over the bowl mixing it into the dry mix by hand until it's crumbly. It should kind of look like dry oatmeal when you're done. In another bowl, mix the molasses, water, and baking soda together, stirring until it's all combined. Now, we can take our liquid mixture and carefully pour it into the pie crust, and then sprinkle the dry mixture on the top a little bit at a time. The key here is to get the dry dough evenly spread over the top, so don't stir it at all. At first, most of the dough is going to sink into the filling. By the time you're done, there should be this nice crust over the top of the whole thing. When it's done, then cover the top with aluminum foil to protect it from burning and bake it at 450 degrees 
for about 15 minutes. Turn the oven down to 350 and bake it for another 20 minutes. After that, just let it cool off a bit and slice it up. Dessert is served. This is a really rich dish, so I like to have mine with some vanilla ice cream for a perfectly balanced of flavors. I've been your host, Scott Parrish, and I'd like to thank you for listening to Dying to Eat. This show is made possible by listeners like Mark and Joe Carter. I really appreciate your support and that of all of our listeners. If you like what you heard and you'd like to hear more, look out for new episodes every week on your favorite podcast platform. Make sure to follow us on Instagram or Facebook. We want your positive comments. So drop us a like and follow the show to stay up to date on our latest episodes. Until next time, stay lively.